Hello and welcome to the Development Dilemma podcast, a place for the conversations we've been avoiding between expats and locals in the development space. We're here from both sides of the table to tackle development dilemmas and chart how we can do it better. Join me as we start the conversation. This episode was recorded live from the podcast's first live event in Nairobi on the 3rd of October. This was a great panel discussion event with Lorraine from episode one and Sarika from episode four sharing on some of the reasons for why it's so hard to have this discussion in the first place. It was a really lively discussion and was followed by even more engagement in the following unrecorded breakout groups. And as a result, building on the momentum from this past event, I'll be hosting another one in Nairobi on the 6th of November at 3pm at Lava Latte. More information can be found on social media. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thank you all very much for coming. I thought I'd kind of just start with a little background on the podcast, where this came from. So my name's Arnav, Development Development Podcast. It came out of a, an experience where I left university in the UK. I, I came over to Kenya, and that was, that was good and bad. I came with no experience, no real skills. But at the same time, I came with curiosity. I was just happy to be here. And so as a result of that, I kind of joined a, a UK aid organization here initially, and there I kind of began to just ask a lot of questions and, and develop friendships among some of the colleagues. And as I did so, started to learn about the ways in which from their experiences, many of them, and this is brought across the, the few that I talked to in the organization, just really were not convinced about the work they did. Uh, and these were mission-driven organizations for whom many of the, the staff were committed but didn't believe in the work they were doing and the impact. At the same time, I would see kind of the top, which was expat and, and white-led, and they were very much selling the vision, selling the mission, and continuing to fund these organizations, and did genuinely believe in it, but, but there was a disjunct between what was the, the reality of what my Kenny colleagues would know much better about the impact of these works and their projects, and then those who kind of led the organization. And, and it was a curious thing to see, and I was kind of wanting to understand how could such a disjunct exist within big organizations, within multi-year projects. So that was the origin of this question. And what I found was that the way I had learned myself was really thanks to kind of the vulnerability of Kenning friends who began to kind of share some of their genuine experiences, which took a lot of bravery and courage from their point and their perspective to open up and not feel there would be repercussions on them or, or otherwise. And at the same time, I think in those discussions, some of the assumptions they held about, about me, about me as an expat, about why I was here also began to kind of unravel. And it was interesting to see that was kind of an important part of bridging that gap in a small way. So that's kind of what came about and what, where the podcast came about. Well, how do we bring about these conversations more often in more spaces and in ways that engender more empathy between both groups? And from there, we'd learn from each other. And the hope today is really much an experiment to see how can we continue to create these conversations and what does it mean to share some of those experiences to, to help build some of the empathy. And uh, with that, I'd love to start with, with you both and, and perhaps asking a little bit of where have you come from to this space and therefore, you know, what's the position you speak from? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Lorraine. I come to this conversation as a Kenyan who's in the impact space. So I previously worked in trying to increase financial inclusion, especially around sub-Saharan Africa. I moved on to now trying to fund local entrepreneurs who have started uh, companies that are in some way reducing the carbon footprint. So just by the nature of the space, a lot of foreigners, especially white foreigners, 
<laughs> I don't know how like open <laughs> I can be. I'll try to be just myself. Who come into Africa with an idea of what the solutions are to the different problems. I don't think the conversation is being had enough on how to translate our culture, the way we live and the the solutions that we need to the impact of investing on development space. Hi everyone, my name is Sarika Bunsel. I am a writer and editor and I've lived here for four years now in Nairobi. Moved here with my husband and we met when we were both living in India where I think we both had a very different expat experience. My family is from India so it was obviously a very different experience for me being there versus coming here. And so came here, I started a magazine called Bright Magazine, which uh, has since closed. And I have just come out with a book. And I think that I come to this this conversation because I think a lot of the questions in my book, actually, which is called Tread Brightly Notes on Ethical Travel, are all about like, what does it mean to show up in the world? And how do you show up in the world thoughtfully and with intention? And what does what does it mean to travel? And travel can be like both a weekend trip or if you go somewhere to live there for a long term. How do you think about arriving into a new place culturally, socially, environmentally? And how do you do so just, you know, by both being true to yourself, but also trying to understand the people where you're arriving? So I think all of these questions have been very much top of mind for me. So I come here with that mindset. Okay. Awesome. Following on that, why for you is this conversation important? The way I look at it is the problems that we're solving and the people who are most affected by those problems have had enough to deal with. It's almost from an irritation of we need to get our act together so that we, we can give more applicable solutions to climate change, to inequality, to financial ex- exclusion, to lack of health care, all that. I almost come to the con- conversation, I'm sorry to say, with that frustration of a lot of these organizations are hiring people like me, middle class Kenyans, who sound good enough to be hired, but haven't really experienced the problems. And then you also have expatriates or foreigners who also don't know the problems. And we are a bunch of people not taking enough time to figure out how do we solve these problems in a way that can scale fast enough. So I want us to have the conversation just so that we can get out of our own way. For instance, in the clean energy space, I know a lot of people thought people need solar lamps so that kids can read at night. That's a good example. Well, who told you that? I don't know that to speak for all Africans. And, I don't, and I'm not even speaking for Kenyans as a whole, but from just the conversations we have, there are a lot of things that Kenyans can say, this is not going to work, but I feel like the space is not created for the conversation to be had in an honest way. And and I'm curious, picking up on that, that notion that you bring those solar lamps, it increases reading, it increases education. Why doesn't that fit? Just because in rural areas, there's much more to do at night. And that's even part of the problem you're asking me. Right, And I come to the conversation hoping that we can get closer to these people that we call beneficiaries, who are actually customers, because we are making a return from them. So in, in that case, maybe the problem is not just the lamp, 
maybe ask them what is it that you need the most? I come to this conversation with kind of just like a bigger question of just like why is there a Kenyan expat divide in the first place? But living in India was such a different experience for me. I think for a few different reasons. Number one, I I was just working at an Indian company and all of my friends were Indian pretty much. And you go out to bars and restaurants and everyone there is Indian. And, you know, you call the experts and they're Indian and you see where I'm going. But it's also a very different living experience as well, because here, when I first arrived in Kenya in 2017, I just noticed how everything was behind walls, everything. And just learning how to navigate the city required an insider's perspective that you can't just get. It's such a divided city. Anyone that I was talking to wasn't just walking down the street and getting vegetables and haggling for the price. You go to a a proper grocery store for it. And even that you have to get your vehicle checked and then you pay a parking fee. And like, it just, it's, it's automatically exclusionary. You can just go throughout it throughout a day and only interact with the with the specific people that you need for certain things. So I think that the space and the setup of the city just creates a, a, a situation where you have more of a divide. There is such a, an obvious wealth gap. I mean, there is in India as well, but like here it's just, you, you don't even enter the same spaces as people who are in different classes. I remember the first bar I went to was Jay's and there's like groups of Kenyans here, groups of Indians there, groups of white people there, and no one is mixing with each other. And it felt like, you know, a bad high school cafeteria or something. And I think that that's something that it was just so stark to me when I first got here. So yeah, I kind of want to just erase the divide altogether and try to just get to a point in life where you can just actually talk to and have relationships with people who are outside your social bubble. Do you chuckling at the reference to Jay's? Yeah, Jay's is just one of those places that really brings this conversation to light, right? It's a place in Kenya that has been made comfortable for outsiders and is not comfortable at all for people who live here. And that's a lot like the development space, no? Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to start. I'm curious. Why is this a conversation that's hard to have? And and why isn't it had? And maybe Sarika. I think that everyone likes to think they're doing a better job than they are is why I think it's hard to have. And especially I feel like a lot of expats come here and they don't like to admit that, you know, you walk into a party and it's all other expats there. And, you know, I, I think that's uncomfortable. That's an uncomfortable for so many foreigners. They've like, you know, packed up their bags and moved to Kenya. And who are they hanging out with? other people who packed up their bags and moved to Kenya. And I think that that's just like something that people don't like to acknowledge that that's, that that's what their social circles are. And that's, I, I think that's the reason why this conversation is hard to have because no one wants to admit it's true. And I think that for on the Kenyan side that, I mean, my sense is, I think one, one frustration that I've sensed is that I think a lot of Kenyans who work in, in like development spaces in particular who end up being closer to foreigners is that they're expected to be the teacher and they're expected to be the ones to uh, communicate what is Kenyan culture about to the foreigners. And they didn't sign up for that role of teacher. That's not their job description. But yet that's just kind of what they end up having to do. So I think just figuring out from a Kenyan perspective, like how to navigate those situations, be true to yourself and not have to feel like you have to be the tour guide and the interpreter at all times. On the point of teaching, let me speaking for myself, 
the only time I've felt like I'm being used as a translator of culture is when someone wasn't curious enough about me. And that happens a lot where, yeah, they kind of, the, the conversation just starts from a place of, tell me where to go, tell me what to do in this city, tell me who to, who to hang out with, kind of. And it's, it doesn't start from, tell me about you. And I think when you do that, I think anyone would shut down. And I think maybe if, if there's a genuine curiosity about the country you're in, so let me give you an example. If you come into Nairobi and all you want to know is the route to Karura, I immediately know this is not really going to go anywhere. I want to find the good parts of the city conversation that immediately tells me, yeah, I can help you, I can teach you, but you're not, you're not curious enough about me for me to tell you the deep parts of my culture. And maybe Lorraine, actually, so this it was about three years ago, and we'd known each other for all of maybe two months at this point, and we, we had to go to Johannesburg for work, and we, we went to the Apartheid Museum over there, and it was a obviously a very powerful experience, and we exited the Apartheid Museum, and as we did so, we saw kind of like, gaggle of like three four white girls crying and I looked at that and I was I was a bit taken aback because it was like well they shouldn't feel they've done anything wrong this is this speaks to humanity and, and the horrors we can commit but it is something that you know they shouldn't be held culpable for but I think you had quite a different experience to that and I thought yeah that was that was where we began to have some of these hard conversations I began to learn some of the errors of how I was seeing it yeah I think from that conversation I realized how and I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but from your perspective, this was something in the past. When as a black woman or man, it's very much just this, well, it's not the same. Let me not minimize what people went through in the past, but there are a lot of similarities when it comes to racism. And that's where our conversation began. We stand in a room that is largely expat, largely white, for a conversation that is, is one that we both need to be having. I'm curious you had experience of inviting Kenyan friends, and I wonder, yeah. why did it seem hard yeah. to invite them to this space? We have to talk about the backdrop of the power dynamic. A lot of Kenyans are working in these organizations as middle management and lower. And there's a sense in which... <laughs> I'm getting a bit uncomfortable at how honest I have to be, and that's... That's testament to how hard this conversation is to have. There's a sense in which I have to disagree with you in a way that's likable because I need the job. If I disagree with you and what you are doing, I have to disagree with you in a way that doesn't put my job at risk. And that power dynamic is the beginning of the answer of why the, the conversation is hard to have. And then the second thing is it takes so much vulnerability to go like, I'll explain to you about my culture. I'll explain to you about the problems that we're facing at the risk of you saying, yeah, but what's wrong with you people? Why aren't you people like us? That takes a lot of vulnerability. And, as, and if you look at it from a, the Kenyan perspective, you're a Monday to Friday problem, and I go home and I'm speaking to other Kenyans. So I can kind of like just silo this problem and get away from it and not have to be so vulnerable. It's a vulnerable conversation that puts you in a very defensive space 
and you don't understand why you're defending yourself. Let me give you an example of this, of, of what I'm saying. So we had a French colleague who came to Nairobi and went like, um, what's wrong with the traffic here? Why do you people drive so badly and so disorganized in such a, in many words, uncivilized manner? And it was like, you guys need to fight more for better roads, better driving, better a better culture. And I just asked him, what about the French way of driving did you contribute to? There's a notion that personally, there's something inherently different about, let's call it development, can, developed countries and the people who come from there that is automatically civilized. So just the fact that I, I have to defend myself and my people already puts me at that very vulnerable position where I'd just rather not have the conversation. And I hope that this conversation makes it easier because I do think we have a job to do that forces us to have a better relationship. And I think what's really hard as well is we talk about a space where there's that underlying power imbalance, right? And that's that's economically, not in all cases, but economically often it's in the companies, it's in the businesses, in the workplaces. And, and what it means is that you are asked to you know, defend yourself. And I can feel like I'm being vulnerable, but if I have the power, it's not real vulnerability. I just want to also acknowledge, though, that you know, these groups are not monoliths. I feel like there's a risk of stereotyping here of like Kenyans are like X and expats are like Y because there's such a broad spectrum in both cases, right? Of course, even just having very many friends who are not from here, people come here with very different motives, incentives, perspectives. But as a Kenyan, it's very hard to jump over the hoop to the question, why is it hard to have the conversation? It's that that's what's playing in Kenyans' minds. Like, you see it everywhere, and sometimes there's no reward to finding out if you're the different type of expert. I also don't even truly understand the word expatriate because it doesn't translate when I go somewhere else to work. Yeah, absolutely. We touched on in, the, in our episode about the differential usage of the word expat versus immigrant and who is an expat who is an immigrant has so many yeah there's obvious racial connotations to it and there's also the privilege connotations that Lorraine that you're bringing up and then yet there's also this way in which it carries a recognition of some of the problems and I mean then looking to like what we you know as both Kenyans and foreigners, or just different people in these spaces. What do you think are some of the questions we should be then asking ourselves? I think, just speaking for the Kenyan perspective, I think Kenyans need to approach the conversation from a secure place, understanding that there's nothing inherently wrong with you. And if I can approach the conversation as an equal, then now I can look at you as a like just, you're like me, and I'm trying to find out who you are. Let me speak for myself and the Kenyans I've spoken to. Sometimes there's a sense of the phrase, beggars are not choosers. There's a sense sometimes if the money is coming from you, then you in inherently have to be better than me. And I think that kind of shoots the conversation down even before it has started. And I would really hope that Kenyans would get to that point of, first of all, development doesn't have to look the same everywhere. 
Secondly, there's nothing inherently better or worse about one group or the other. And then approach the conversation with just a curiosity about the person so that even when mistakes are made in how you communicate or how I communicate to you, you can be more understanding and then take the role of, I think this is, this is where your thinking is wrong, rather than just go like, oh, you go again. Because like even the South Africa conversation, the reason it was easy to have with you was that we had had other conversations outside this conversation of what is, what is a foreigner and what is a Nairobian and what is a Kenyan. You told me about your mom loving interior decor and like I knew you as a person so that by the time you said something that I felt was insensitive, I was like, this is an insensitive comment, but Arnav is not an insensitive person. And I know there's that stereotyping amongst Kenyans and it's for the reasons I said, because you're a Monday to Friday problem. I don't really need to get to know you. I don't need to break the vulnerability barrier. I just, I wish Kenyans would look at this session more as, how can I just look at you as another human being? Of course, that's very naive to say there, there is racism and bias and everything, but just in general to approach the conversation from a, like, naive place so that you don't make any assumptions about someone until they prove who they are. Yeah. I like that a lot. When your relationships are with people who are of service to you, like a taxi driver or someone who's doing your nails or bagging groceries for you, whatever it is, you're never going to actually learn the language. You're never going to actually learn the culture because it's your relationship is just transactional. And, and I think that the biggest thing that anyone can do is just get out of that transactional mindset and think about how to have put yourself in a situation where you're having a true cultural exchange and you're just going to a place to have a friendship and you just want to genuinely approach someone as an equal and with an opportunity to learn. And I think this is true both on the Kenyan side and the expat side. I think that from like a lot of the Kenyan perspective, like maybe there's things that that you know you can learn that you didn't learn in university that you don't have the chance to learn in your day-to-day -day job that by being face to face with someone who grew up in a different country than you that there is something to learn from them that can make you a better person yeah and just to add on to that like i think gosh i have so many thoughts sorry one of the intricacies that is hard to translate is how divided as you mentioned our society is and even within our society, there's class, there's tribe, there's, there are people who inherently have more value because of a name or where they're from, that when you then add the powder keg of, I'm going to say it very bluntly, like white from countries especially that were colonizers, when you add that power keg, it's like we put you in that strata and we decide you're better. So there are Kenyans who, if you have this conversation with, because they're closer to the top and have traveled more widely, who will like put themselves down because they're closer to the top. So that's what happens when you get into a very divided society. And that's something and I don't think is easy for an expatriate or a foreigner to see. I think it's easy for other Africans to see because it's similar in Africa. That's where I keep coming back to. Kenyans need to understand, first of all, there's nothing immoral about being poor. 
there's nothing inherently immoral about being from a place that has developed in a different trajectory to what is called a developed country. There's nothing inherently wrong with who you are. So you have to you you should have the confidence and almost pride like when you approach the conversation we are equals. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the way that colonization has happened in Kenya and in many parts of Africa has just been brutal in that kind of way of just telling you that your culture is bad, that your people are lesser than, and that you should listen to the white man. Like, it's just, it's so, it was so I mean, literally black and white. And I think that that's leads to so much insecurity, like that goes through generations, you know, just generational kind of insecurities and trauma that, that, that leads to. So I feel like so many of these conversations and so many of those interfaces now, you know, there's, I don't know how many expats there are in Nairobi, but there's, at least 100,000, I'm sure, that there's so many of those chances for those meetings to happen that there's going to be that that generational insecurity that comes from very brutal colonial tactics. And it's not easy to get around. And I think from the expatriate or the foreigner perspective, like just being sensitive to that, like understand that that people are not, that they've gone through a lot. And, you know, it's like even if they personally haven't, their families have for sure. Yeah, so much so. I hadn't appreciated the, the reality of how these things, from my position, from my privilege, could seem like they were of the past, right? And these were historical things, and, and a lot of this is to do with the way British culture is taught and history is taught. And I found it stunning that I have not seen within at least UK aid organizations an explicit conversation had about the reason we are here, the reason we have this space is because of this oppression, is because of this history. And I don't see that explicitly recognized. And instead, what's recognized is, oh, we're here to help you, right? And I, I just found that stunning that we don't connect it because it's, it's connected for you and we feel like it can be disconnected. Let me give you a good example of how it's connected. The MD of <laughs> the organization is to work said his family went to Ghana uh, to work on whatever project it was, but this was colonial Ghana, like, Ghana was still a colony. <laughs> My grandfather, on the other hand, worked for, was working for a white farmer in Eldoret. Like, that's our history. It's hard to go like, this is history, when it's just like two generations past. It's such a big part of my present. There's very little I can speak about today that is not affected by our history as a colony. I think it even, it speaks to the conversation we are having about the workplace, is that if all the conversations you have are about inequality or problems or just all of it, it's very hard for me to then just open up about things that are not related to that. And the best example I I can give is with pregnancy, because pregnancy is such a shared experience that that's the one place where you see that wall fall down. Well, in some instances, in some cases, it's almost like questions like, where will you give birth um, in a hospital? But the, that's where it's like, do you have morning sickness? The conversation is very human. And I wish it was just like that with more things. And then the conversation would be easier to have about me translating my culture so that we can find solutions that actually work.
hearing you say that just makes me think of like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and like the bottom of it are the very basic things we need to survive, you know, food, water, shelter. And then you move up and then like towards the top is like self-actualization and, you know, sense of beauty and self or, you know, these things like that. And I think that so many foreigners, especially who work in development, come to Kenya with the idea of people only at that very bottom level. And they don't imagine people and everyone has, you know, everyone has these higher needs as well, no matter where you are in the world, no matter your station in life. And I think that it's just a matter of for foreigners to understand that, like, that's true of every single human being I'm interacting with. And I mean, I guess, you know, in what is a tricky conversation, then what are elements that that give you hope? And and do you hope also kind of, you know, people here take away? Something that gives me hope that is outside this conversation is just the global conversation about what it means to be black and African and the pride that we should take in it. So then that means we also just feel like we can approach the conversation differently. Like for the longest time, for instance, the conversation on hair, on whether it's okay to be dark, the conversation on colorism, all those conversations becoming main topics helps us go like, oh, wait, this is how I look at myself as less than, and then change your mind. The thing I hope that just we take out of the conversation is, and I've kind of touched on it before, especially for Kenyans, but the thing I really hope we take away from it is that you should you should always approach the conversation as an equal. And I get that there's social capital and in some ways economic capital to be gained from like just being almost obedient. I don't know what other word to use, but you should always approach the conversation as an equal and then approach the conversation with just a curiosity and a spirit of learning and also teaching where if almost just always remain naive that even if something insensitive happens, it's something insensitive, it's not necessarily someone insensitive until you've been proven beyond reasonable doubt that this person is insensitive. And I think that helps us have more open conversations and more honest conversations and it helps us translate our lived experience to others and understand their lived experience and just improve, even in the workplace, forget about the mission and vision that we are here for, but just in the workplace, it helps us live a better work. I actually, when I was thinking about what gives me hope, I thought of something very similar, which is just that I feel like words like racism and colonialism are allowed to be said and, you know, allowed to be acknowledged and brought into a room and into a conversation much more so than, than even like two, three years ago, really. And I think that that's a huge space for hope because I think that people it gives people language to put to their experiences and I think that there is yeah just like so much hope that I have for just more honest conversations my hopes for the future are number one that I think from a workplace development especially that arena is that is that there is more emphasis on on building up skills of Kenyan staff and bringing them not into just entry level positions, but into much higher levels and, you know, and giving people 
the opportunities for training and whatever else they need in order to thrive in those in those positions. Um, my other hope, I was thinking about the show, the TV show, Shit's Creek. And what's interesting about the show is that it doesn't end up just being stereotypical of just like, oh, you know, rich people go to a small town and then they become better human beings as a result. It actually shows like the people in the town also become almost like they, they start seeing bigger for themselves. Like they're able to to see wider beyond the scope of their tiny town and where they've been. Not saying that Kenya is like that, but I do think that there is a sense that if someone if someone who's coming from outside comes in, can they also help you see beyond what maybe your ambitions were for yourself? And so that's what I hope from for Kenyans that like that interacting with foreigners can help you just realize bigger ambitions for yourself that maybe you didn't know that you had. I think that's very easy to misconstrue. What What do you mean by bigger ambitions? Like if someone just, you know, if, if someone had thought at some point, like, oh, maybe I should go do an MBA somewhere, but I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know what would be a good school for me, that maybe there could be some learning that happens there of just like understanding what different types of opportunities exist in the world that maybe you weren't aware of before. That's that's kind of difficult to take in. So, for instance, the ambitions I have, not that they don't also come from my foreign colleagues, but a lot of it comes from my Kenyan colleagues. Like, the, the statement you make sounds like there are not enough Kenyans to give me ambition. No, that's... Okay, that's... That, all right, I apologize if that's how it came across. That's not how I meant it at all. I'm just thinking about how if people do come together, I hope Kenyans can look at someone who has just very different experiences than you do and that, you know, you can use those... You can, like, listen to those experiences and benefit from it in a, a way that may be a bit different from your Kenyan colleagues who, you know, you all went to a similar university system just to have, like, a, a new, different perspective. Not a better one, but just a different one. I think the thing, I, I understand what you mean. And I think the way to balance it out is foreigners can also learn a lot from us. Yeah, of course, both sides can learn a lot. I think it's like co-shaping of, of that learning in both directions and, and, and making that the focus of any kind of any project where I think the tendency anyway is as those coming from elsewhere and you're coming for some reason or for some job into, into this country, the assumption is you're the one bringing those skills and bringing those new things, which there are elements of truth within that for sure. But those need to be investigated. And, and then especially when you're trying to apply them to a country, to a place, to people you don't know, you don't understand, well, you need to be very careful and, and listening a lot more in how you exchange. And it becomes an exchange, I guess, as opposed to kind of a one-way thing. Thank you both very much for sharing so honestly so openly about what is a, a tricky conversation are there any questions or comments this conversation is targeted a lot at expats who want to have these conversations and we're in a room full of people who want to have these conversations but there's a lot of white expats in kenya and elsewhere who don't want to have these conversations <clears throat> for example i have a business based in kigali and there's a facebook group called expats in rwanda that explicitly bans Rwandis from joining and the members and the admins stop any conversation to do with race, to do with Black Lives Matter, to do with anything. They explicitly said, this is not this place, we're so fed up with all of that, we don't want any of it. And when I first came to Kenya in 2017, I worked in hospitality on the coast in a very popular 
coastal destination that's seen as being very cool and very worldly, but it's an open secret that all the very popular businesses that everyone goes to on a weekend are owned by openly racist white people who have no interest in changing, who are racist to their staff, they're misogynist to their black staff, their staff then internalize a lot of that racism and they just will not allow anyone have any conversation about this in any space in which they own it or are just involved in. And every day, in, not every day, but very often in Nairobi, you see white expats being openly racist to people. I've seen it at the airports, at restaurants, I've seen it amongst my friends. I came here completely oblivious to everything. I turned up as an Irish person, I turned up in Kenya, and I moved to Khalifi, and then I met all these posh white English people, and I couldn't understand what they were doing in Kenya, and then I started to learn the history. I've stayed, I spent a few weeks living in Karen. You see the same thing over there. So it's history, but it's everywhere. And you try to have this conversation with a lot of people who move here for superficially well-meaning motivations. But a lot of them are here because it's going to be cool. It's going to be fun. It's going to be so interesting. They're going to go home so much more interesting than they were when they got here. And then you try to have a conversation with them like, well, are you aware of this? And have you read this book? And, you know, Who's benefiting from you coming over, getting paid $100,000 a year to like fix something, and then you leave, leave two years later and it's not been quote-unquote fixed. So while we can have this conversation with people who genuinely want to, there's a structural issue as well about a lot of people who come over and do not want to have this conversation. It's kind of an open-ended question. It's so tough because I feel like there's so many spaces in Kenya that are structurally made to not to just cater i mean there was the a few years ago chandarana there was an email that was leaked from them that basically said that they were trying to aim towards having more white clientele or something like that and and i think that there's just so many businesses in kenya that just see that as the aim i don't know what the answer is like i don't know if the answer is just to try to raise more of a ruckus whenever you can whenever it's uh you know when you're in those spaces that people are saying openly racist things just call them out on it i don't know how you can have that conversation as a kenyan it's it's your place definitely but i don't know whether it's worth it i think some of these conversations with openly racist people who are here can only be had with other expatriates or foreigners i think it's too much it's too much emotional labor and i don't see i hope this is this is not too hopeless but i genuinely don't see like i'll be the one to change your mind i'll speak openly to people who are interested in having the conversation and hope that they have enough empathy to have those conversations on our behalf and i think what we've seen with Black Lives Matter is a normalization of those tough conversations. Uh, if the conversation we're having now becomes more common amongst people who are open to the conversations, are open to seeing some of the issues, then it becomes a bit more common, a bit more normal, and at, at the point where they may not be able to avoid that conversation. Hello. I don't know if I have questions, but more comments. One, I agree with you. I don't think it's uh, 
for us to have that conversation. It really isn't. And it's, it is exhausting to have that conversation. I feel like the emotional labor for it is like, oh, not interested, but also not worth it for many people who at the end of the day, draw a salary or, you know, that sort of thing from somebody who's in a position of power. It just doesn't work like that. So I wanted to say two things. One, I also think Kenyans are very accommodating as a Kenyan myself. We're very accommodating of a lot of, I would say BS in a certain, in, in a, it's, it's, and you'll hear it because both when you go to West Africa, they don't give two whatevers. They don't. I think it's also a Kenyan thing. It's for us to stand up for our waiters, our staff, our whatever it is. And I say that working in an industry, because I work in a lot of construction, the owners are usually expats. The people who get the contracts are mostly like Indian community. And then the people who do the work, the laborers are Kenyans. And I think you both mentioned it about having this conversation on an equal level before offering help or assistance or anything like that. I remember getting into a really heated sort of debate with a friend of mine who I'm glad we remained friends who had come here working with an, organi with an organization that was bringing access to contraception for women working in the villages or in low-income areas. And as someone who has worked in sort of that field and has a lot of like family, I know in your opinion and from where you come from, this is the thing they need. Women having children, they cannot support. But if you sit here and talk to Auntie Wagare, my auntie, She'll tell you she wants to have the six children. She does not not want to have those children. Give her the help that is that maybe will give her access to financing for her microfinance for her little shop that sells animal feed, right? And and just appreciating that we have a very different mindset. The many children are not the problem in that particular argument. If you come and tell me that's what your problem is, you're having so many children and you cannot support them, blah blah, but you're not appreciating that. Actually, where I come from, in the culture that I come from, you want to have many children and that it is a gift. And so this help that you're bringing me, which is fantastic, if you really sat down with the people that you're giving it to, is not actually the help that they're looking for. And I think that would change how a lot of organizations work here. This is so fantastic. I wish more people were part of these conversations. Locals and expats. Yeah, I love, I, I absolutely agree that, you know, just there's so many people who come into Kenya with the answers. And yeah, I think this is also just a fault of the development sector to be like, the entire world needs these goals and it needs to achieve those goals in these ways and not actually give room for cultural nuance in places where more children is more of an asset rather than a liability. And then just helping people make sure that they get the contraception as and when they want it, but not force it on them. I think that the point you made about contraceptives is the main problem. If we could talk about one thing, it would be that. Just the idea, consider for a second that you don't know everything and that the person who you're coming to help is a rational actor and they know within their set of circumstances are making the best decisions for themselves. Like if that was just even, I'm not even speaking just for the expatriates, even for just Kenyans in the development space, if that was just the approach we took, just consider for a bit, like going with humility, that if you lived in Kakamega and you had an animal fertilizer shop and this were your set of circumstances, you would do the exact same thing that person is doing. I can't emphasize that enough. Just consider for a second that what you term as a life of dignity is not what someone else thinks is a life of dignity. Thanks for listening. 
That was a powerful end to a difficult conversation, and it was followed by even livelier discussion between Kenyans and foreigners on these tricky topics in the breakout groups. If you want to have these conversations yourself, come to our next event at Lava Latte on the 6th of November at 3pm, and bring along friends and colleagues. Details will be shared on social media, and I look forward to meeting some of you there. Thank <laughs> you.